0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. All right, we are in the book of Leviticus. Go ahead and open with me there. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you are certainly welcome to take that Bible home with you. Uh, Whenever we start a new book in the life of the church, we like to do an introductory sermon so that we understand the forest as we begin to look at the trees. Uh, The book of Leviticus is no exception, and it probably requires more of an introductory sermon than most other books because it's a book that's extremely difficult for us to comprehend. modern man, particularly in the West, tends to think very light thoughts about God, if we think thoughts about God at all. Most people who believe in God think about him in a very casual way. It's not uncommon for people to say that part of their normal experience in this life is to talk to God and to say that God talks back to them. It's a very chit-chatty relationship. Most people tend to see God as a sort of kindly grandpa who may not approve of everything we do, but who nevertheless warmly welcomes us every time we come back home. This light view of God is not unique to non-Christians. A great deal of modern preaching is designed to make people feel like becoming a Christian is something like reconnecting with an old friend. And that being a Christian is kind of like just hanging out with your buddy. This way of thinking about God is captured well in the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts that were pretty popular several years ago in American evangelicalism. Even in healthier churches, where we tend to think weightier thoughts about God, we can still sometimes grow cold to the reality of who God is. We aren't blown away by the fact that we can have a relationship with God, by the fact that we can talk to God, that God speaks to us through His Word, or that we can be His representatives here on earth. I mean, we are completely numb to the reality that one of the sweet promises of the gospel is that the Spirit of God promises to live in these bodies of flesh. Our relationship with God just feels normal, casual. It's like a Tuesday, no big deal. And none of this is good. And the book of Leviticus is here to remind us that God is holy. What does it mean that God is holy? Oftentimes when we hear the word holy, we think that it means that God is exceptionally morally pure. And, and to be sure, it's true that God is exceptionally morally pure, but that's not what it means when we say that God is holy. When we say that God is holy, we mean something like he is altogether different. He is distinct. He is set apart. Holy is like your grandma's fine china, right? You had a bunch of dishes in your house And you always use those. You can never use grandma's fine china. If the president came over, maybe you could get it out and eat on it. But other than that, that, those dishes are set aside for a very distinct, special purpose. They're not common. Well, that's what God is like. He is not like us or anything else in this created universe. And the Bible tells us, particularly in the book of Leviticus, over and over and over again that God is holy. He is different than us. He is beyond us. He is utterly distinct from us. You see this uh, language always paired together, his, his distinction and his holiness when the writers of the Bible talk about God. So First Samuel 2.2 2 says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Isaiah 40.25 says, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One of Israel. Hosea 11.9 says, I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I'm not like you. I'm altogether separate. So when we say that God is pure, we don't just mean that he's pure like other pure things that we know. We mean that he is pure in a way that is utterly distinct and different from any other kind of purity. When we say that God is love, we can't point to any other kind of love in this universe and say that is what the love of God is like. Because God is holy, his love is a different kind of love. The same thing is true of his righteousness and his sovereignty. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, noted that holiness is not in and of itself an attribute of God. Rather, it is a summary of the perfection of all of his other attributes. God is loving, wrathful, patient, just, omniscient, and so on in a way that is completely other. He's in a class all by himself. Now this holiness, it just flies in the face of our modern sensibilities, our natural intuitions about who God is and what God is like. The Bible paints a very different picture of God than the picture that we sort of carry around with us when we think about who he is. In the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophet after whom the book was named has a vision of coming into contact with God. And when he does, he comes into contact with the full splendor of his holiness. Listen to the description of this encounter. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. And with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Do you see the way that Isaiah responds to a holy God? And if you do, is it very much in line with the Jesus is my homeboy version of Christianity that is so common among us? There are many different reasons why Leviticus is so hard for us to understand. We are separated from the original audience of this book by time, geography, language, cultural customs. But the main reason why we don't understand the book of Leviticus, the main reason why Leviticus is so hard for us to wrap our minds around is because we don't understand that God is holy. And not only do we not really understand God, but so often we fail to understand ourselves. When we think about ourselves, we tend to see ourselves as basically good people. Flawed, for sure, but basically good and even if we do admit that we're sinful, we, we don't really know what that word means. We don't understand the weight connected to that word. We, we think of sin as something like an oopsie daisy, you know, a, an honest mistake. Sure, it wasn't right, but I know you're not going to hold it against me. When we think about ourselves as moral people, we tend to compare ourselves with other people who are obviously worse than us. And that just reinforces our sense that we're okay. We're going to be okay with God. But when we stop comparing ourselves to other people and their righteousness, or their lack thereof, and we start comparing ourselves to God and to his righteousness, a different picture begins to emerge. We begin to realize that we're far worse off than we might have imagined. We come to see that our sin is way worse than an oopsie-daisy. Now here's the problem. It might be said that it's the central problem of the whole Bible. If God is holy, and if we are sinful, we may not coexist with God. As sinful human beings, we may not dwell in a holy and righteous God's perfect presence. It might be said that this is the main axle around which the entire gospel message wraps itself around hey will can you give me some water buddy thanks uh you you begin to really see this central theme emerge at the very beginning of the bible in genesis one through three uh adam and eve our first parents when god created them they walked with god in perfect bliss they were in the presence of his holiness and they lived in perfect peace with him There, there, there were no issues there was no problem and then you know how the story goes partly because I tell you this story all the time, because it's our story, man sinned. And because of our sin, God put us out of the garden. But one of the ways that the Bible talks about that is it's not just that we don't have access to these trees anymore. The garden is where God's presence dwelt. So God is putting us away from his presence. And as the story of the Bible progresses, you see that as man goes deeper and deeper into sin, that that sin causes him to move further and further away from the presence of God. Thanks, buddy. I'm a little under the weather today. <clears throat> An example of this is Cain. You can see this in Genesis 4:14. 4, Cain is saying to the Lord after he's been punished, he says, "My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence." If you fast forward to Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel, you find that the knowledge of God has all but dissipated. Man is in the furthest outreaches of the kingdom. They've left on into the the realm of darkness and shadows, and they have no real relationship with God. And they try to pursue God in their own way, according to their own wisdom. And so they say, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now, if the idea of building a tower so big that it could get you to heaven seems dumb to you, then uh, I think you're right. It is dumb. And that's what sin does to us. You remember in the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, after they sinned and they realized that they were naked and they became ashamed, they tried to hide from God by jumping behind some bushes that God himself created. God made them and put them in the garden and then they tried to hide from God behind some of those same bushes in that garden. The same thing happens when they try to fix their own righteousness problem, they go to make underwear for themselves out of fig leaves, right? Not, not bright, okay? This is what sin does to us. So soon after the Tower of Babel, something very significant happens. This is one of the key turning points in, in the whole story of, of the universe. In Genesis 12, God calls a man to himself. A man is Abram. He comes to be known as Abraham. And he calls Abraham to himself and he makes a covenant with him. And when he makes this covenant, he says, Listen, I'm going to be your God, and you are going to have a people for me. And that people soon becomes Israel. And what God is doing here as he creates this people for himself is he is reinitiating a relationship with humanity. He is doing something that will draw all of lost humanity, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, back into a relationship with himself. You can see this language all throughout the book of Exodus. When you read it, you can see it in Exodus 33. God is promising the promised land to his people, and he's promising to go with them, and he says it like this. He says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Right Where I am is where you will find rest. As long as I am with you, everything is going to be okay. It's going to be just like it was in the garden. How would the presence of God go with them? Well, he already told them back in Exodus 25. If, if you're reading it through, you would have already had the answer. God tells them, he says, uh, tells Moses to tell them, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. This sanctuary, it has to do with the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. But basically, this is where God in this tent is going to meet with his people and his presence is going to dwell among them. And so this let us build a tower language from Genesis chapter 11, it turns into a let them build for me a tabernacle language in Exodus 25. And then everything that happens throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, on until you get to the beginning pages of Leviticus, it hinges on this promise that God is making to his people, the promise that his presence will be with them. My daughter? Yeah, okay. <clears throat> now, if you've been paying attention, then you have to understand that there's a problem here. We just got through saying that sinful man may not dwell in the presence of a holy God. right? The, the two can't coexist. Light and darkness can't coexist. One has to overpower the other, and light always overpowers the darkness. So what's happening? And the answer is not even immediately obvious as you're reading the story. God doesn't say, don't worry, guys, I'm going to explain how this all fits together. When the Bible, excuse me, when the people of God were camped out at the foot of Mount Sinai, and the the presence of God dwelt at the top of the mountain, the people were not allowed to ascend the mountain, nor were they even allowed to touch the mountain without dying. Exodus 19.12 says this, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it, for whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So it's a very very interesting scenario that we have here. On the one hand, God is, with, with his one hand, drawing his people into a relationship with himself, drawing his people into his presence. And on, on the other hand, with his other hand, he's, he's holding them back from his divine presence. Well, why? Why is this happening? The sim- simple answer is that God has to tell Israel how she might come into his presence. God has to teach Israel, as he is inviting her into his presence, as he's inviting the nation into his presence, he has to teach the nation how she might enter into his presence without being utterly destroyed. In this, in this tabernacle, in this law that God is giving in the book of Leviticus, we see one of the most fundamental truths of our Christian lives. And that is this. God sets the terms for how sinners might approach him in worship. Every time sinners decide to approach God in their own way, according to their own wisdom, by their own means, things go terribly wrong. It leads to disaster. We're going to see that as we walk through the book of Leviticus together. And one of the things that we're also going to see is that God will not allow it. And in the tabernacle, God tells Israel exactly how she must approach him for worship for their own safety. Why the bread and the oil? Why the incense? And why all the gold and the colors and the precise detail? And why all the separations and the different rooms and all the blood and the burnt offerings and the this and the that? We, we read about these these details, and, and they seem so foreign to us, and they don 't make immediate sense to us, and because they don 't make immediate sense to us, we just tend to write them off. We think that they must not be very important. but everything is here for a very specific reason, and we 're going to explore that as we continue to walk through the book. But before we move on, I just I want to tell you guys one of the cardinal sins of evangelicalism. Is that we think that God no longer tells us how we must approach Him in worship. We think that now that Jesus has come, we can just approach God and worship however we feel. I've been forgiven. I can approach God in any kind of casual way that I want. My friends, that is not true. The coming of Jesus has in no way diminished the holiness of God. And although we do have union with Christ, and we are found to be in Christ, particularly on the last day in judgment, that does not mean that we are still not in these bodies of flesh. And we still must approach God in the way that he has commanded us to approach God and approach himself. And so as evangelicals, we say, okay, Sean, but we don't have a Leviticus in the New Testament. There's nothing that says you have to do this and that and the third, but but we kind of do. If you're looking for a specific proof text that says, you know, you have to sing this song and not that song, you're not going to find it. But what you do find is principles and patterns given to us in the New Testament and sometimes even very specific commandments. When you go to join this church, one of the things that I tell you is that unless providentially hindered, you need to be here on Sunday because the Lord has commanded that his people gather together to worship him on the Lord's day. We don't have any other calendar in the New Testament church other than Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday until Jesus calls us home. He has commanded us to worship him in in this way. He's commanded us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's commanded us to have the word preached in the gathering. He's commanded us to have scripture read. He commands us to love one another, to care for the poor, to do baptisms in the Lord's Supper. And then even for the things that he hasn't explicitly commanded, we have good uh, ability to, by way of implication and just wisdom, understand the best way to do these sorts of things. So like if you're wondering why we don't have a drum set up here, it's not because me and the elders of this church hate drums and we're opposed to rhythm. It's just because I think the Bible clearly commands us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, and I think if the instrumentation gets too loud, we won't be able to hear each other. That's an implication of something that's clearly and explicitly taught in Scripture, and so that's why we do what we do. Now, whether or not we get that right, maybe I'll get to heaven and Jesus will say, no, actually, I think you could have had a drum set on stage. Okay. Whether or not that's right, I think the impulse there is the right impulse. It's to treat God's word as sufficient to say that God still tells us how we might approach him in worship for our own good and for his glory. And so as faithful Christians, particularly in the life of the local church, we need to be constantly looking to God's word to see how he has commanded us to worship him. And when we miss it, we have to be honest about that and repent and seek more wisdom from his word as we go to make corrections. Now, From Exodus 25 until the end of the book, I know you guys are thinking like, I thought this was a sermon on Leviticus. What's going on? Well, you have to understand a lot of Exodus in order to understand what's happening in Leviticus. At the end, uh, from 25 until 40, you get what is essentially a virtual tour of the tabernacle. If you're wondering why like, all this detail, like why does the writer tell you uh, for like the last 15 chapters in Exodus all the detail about how the tabernacle was to be made, uh, it's not because God is playing a prank on you. It's because if you lived in a culture where you didn't have like, you know, audio-visual stuff, you would have basically been getting a virtual tour of the tabernacle. Now, at the tail end of Exodus, in chapter 40, we read the following words. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I mean, oh, happy day right? God has promised. He said, my presence is going to be with you, and my presence is going to dwell with you in the tabernacle, and then he tells the people to build their tabernacle, and you have to build it this way and not that way, and they spend all this time and all this energy, and they build the tabernacle exactly how God has told them to build it, and they offer it up to the Lord, and they say, Lord, are you pleased? And the Lord comes down, and he dwells in the tabernacle. This is the language of God's presence, It's all throughout Scripture. It's there in Genesis 1 as the Spirit of God hovers over the waters in creation. It's there in Solomon's temple after the tabernacle is done away with and God kind of moves into a more permanent uh, housing establishment and the the cloud fills the temple and the glory of the Lord is present there with his people in that way. You see the same language on two separate occasions in the Gospels when Jesus has a face-to-face encounter with his Father during his earthly ministry. It's the presence of God. The promise has been fulfilled. And yet even here there seems to be a problem. We read about the, the cloud covering the tent of meeting in verse 34, but in this, verse 35 we read this. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Well, what's going on here? I mean... Moses has kind of been treated up to this point as like the, the man par excellence. He's been kind of uh, another version of Adam. He's been God's man. He's been the, the covenant mediator. He's able to stand in the presence of God when God manifests himself in the burning bush. And there doesn't seem to be an issue with it. He's able to stand in the presence of God as he goes and he ascends Mount Sinai. You know, some of the other guys, they get to come up with him like halfway up and have a feast and stuff, but when it comes time to go all the way up to the top of the mountain into the presence of God, only Moses can do that, and he's able to enter into the cloud of glory. But here at the end of Exodus, we see that Moses cannot enter into God's presence. Now what's even more interesting is if you read all the way from Exodus through Leviticus until Numbers. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, you read these words. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. So at the end of Exodus, Moses is not able to go into the tent. God is speaking to him as he's outside of the tent. But then in Numbers, God speaks to Moses as Moses is actually inside of the tabernacle. Well, what happened? Well, in order to to, to have that answer, you just have to understand how Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers fit together. Uh, Exodus is the story of how the Israelites come up out of the land of Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai. Numbers is the story of what happens from the day that they pack up at the base of Mount Sinai and travel the rest of the way to the Promised Land. The book of Leviticus is everything that happens during that pit stop, during the time that they are at the base of the mountain. And now what's happening at this time while they're camped out at the base of the mountain is that God is giving his people his law, but he's also giving them the holiness code. The holiness code. So what is the holiness code? Well, it's basically everything in Leviticus. And, and what we find here is that God is telling his people two different things. The first one is what we've basically been talking about this entire time. How sinful man might approach a holy God in worship. That's what, you know, the first seven chapters of Leviticus are about offerings. And all of those offerings are about how to rightly worship God. And you see that kind of trotted out throughout the rest of the book. But it also tells us, number two, uh, how God's people must reflect God's holiness once they've come into his holy presence right? They don't, they're not like the deepest possible scientifically developed black that just absorbs all light beams that hit it. That's not what the people of Israel are like. They're supposed to reflect God's glory to the nations and to each other as they bask in his holy presence. You have to remember that one of the key principles of the whole Bible really, but particularly the book of Leviticus, is that if God is holy, everything that belongs to God must also be holy. And Israel belongs to God, so she must be holy. And so uh, no fewer than 10 times in the book of Leviticus, God says, be holy even as I am holy. And so Leviticus is all about that holiness. We're going to talk a lot about priests in the book of Leviticus, and almost everything that we're going to talk about with the priesthood has to do with God calling them to be holy as priests, and so reflect his holiness. All the sacrifices are about holiness, about how sinful people might approach a holy God, but even all the descriptions about how to carry out the sacrifices, God saying, you have to make sure that the sacrifices that you offer me are actually holy sacrifices. The people are going into a land that will itself become holy because God's presence is dwelling there with them. Certain days must be set aside as holy days. The food that you eat must communicate something about the holiness of God. If you're wondering, like, man, why does God have such an issue with, like, shell food? Well, first of all, God just knows what what I think all of us should know, but sin has messed us up. You're not supposed to eat spiders from the bottom of the ocean, okay? Lobsters, crabs, it's just no bueno. No. on a serious note, though, uh, partly because that joke didn't land, but on a more serious note, uh, all of that has to do with holiness, We don't know all the details, but we know enough of it that it was supposed to communicate that God's people were distinct. Uh, the, The same thing has to do with their clothes. Why did you have to dress the way that you dressed? Why couldn't you mix fabrics? Why couldn't you cut your hair a certain way? Why couldn't you put tattoos on your body and mark yourselves for the dead? All of that had to do with God's people reflecting to each other and to the nations around them that they were in fact holy because they had been called by a holy God. And so, Every aspect of this holiness was designed by God to to be a part of every part of their daily lives. And the same thing is true today, brothers and sisters. Uh, The way that we express holiness as New Covenant believers is different than the way holiness was expressed in the Old Covenant. You remember in the Old Covenant, God's people were an ethnic uh, entity, a political entity, and a spiritual entity, and all of that stuff was wrapped up with each other. But in the New Testament, we're not an ethnic people, we're not, you know, Jews descended of Abraham, and we're not political. We don't have like a Christian king. We're a spiritual people. So the way that we communicate our holiness and God's holiness is different, but we are still given this mandate. 1 Peter 1:16 quotes Leviticus directly to the New Testament believers, and he says this, "But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, quoting Leviticus, You shall be holy, for I am holy. One of the things that I think you'll experience uh, as you build up more time following the Lord is that it seems like the harder we try to be holy, uh, the less holy we actually are, you know. Uh, it's, it's one of the weird paradoxes of the Christian experience. You know, the harder you try to be righteous, the more unrighteous you seem to be, uh, at least at least before God's eyes. And it seems like the closer that you move towards God and your relationship with him, the less holy you feel. And I think that's by God's good design because the closer we move to God, the more we understand what holiness really is, the more we can actually see and, and taste and experience what holiness really is. And then we look at ourselves and we go, okay, I, I'm... I understand now more than ever that I'm not holy. And all of this is not meant to be bad news. It's it's meant to encourage you to trust in Christ and the holiness that he has provided for us in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We have to be made holy. There's no way that we can go to heaven and be with God in his presence unless we are made holy. And every false religion has this in common. They try to get you to be holy in your own way, according to your own wisdom, by your own design. And all it ever does is make us less and less holy. But Christ came and he purchased us. And he set us apart for his own special use. And if we just trust and receive his promises, then we know that we will get to be with God in his holy presence forever. Before closing, I want everyone in this room to understand uh, that if we are not found in Jesus, we will not get to be in God's presence. Uh, When I was a kid, my mom had various methods of discipline. Uh, One of them was grounding. And, uh, you know, I was never really afraid of being grounded, you know, because my mom would always be like, all right, you're grounded for a week. And I'm like, eh, because really in my house, grounded for a week meant like, a day or two, you know, grounded for the afternoon. I don't know what parents do nowadays, what are they? it's like take away your cell phone, you know, no cell phone until you die, you know. In my house, when I did something really bad, it was like, okay, you're grounded for a month. But really what that meant was like, you're grounded for a week, you know. And sometimes I think that that's how we think about God and his promises of justice and wrath against those who don't know him. We read what the Bible says about God and how uh, sin cannot live in his holy presence and how he will by no means allow us to darken the doors of heaven in our own filth and unrighteousness. And yet, we tend to think of God like this kindly grandpa, you know, who, yeah, he's gonna try to discipline me, but he loves me and he's just gonna let it go. It'll be fine, he'll let me in. Friends, that's not true. One of the bitter promises of the gospel and it is a promise, is that all those who remain in disobedience will be shut out from the presence of God forever. This is what 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says. Paul, using very unpopular language to our modern ears, says, he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction separated from the presence of God of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the reason why we exist. This is why we're gathered here together as a church. I love you guys so much and I'm I'm so close to I mean just about every single person in this room. But like I'm not here to hang out with you. And and I hope you're not ultimately here to hang out with me. We are here because God has drawn us together into his presence and he's given us a mission. He has called us to go out and announce the good news that God is inviting all men back into his presence if they would only repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. And I just cannot wait for that day because in the presence of the Lord there is nothing but peace and joy and goodness forevermore. Sometimes we have questions about what what hell exactly is going to be like. Even in this one verse, you see, there seems to be like a, a duality. On the one hand, there's active inflicting of, of vengeance on those who do not know the Lord. On the other hand, it seems to be a withholding of the presence of God. Well, Even if we can't put all those pieces together, I just know it's going to be terrible. And I know that I love people and I don't want them to experience that. And I want them to experience all the goodness that God has for them. And based off of everything that we've seen this morning, we know that God is the kind of God who does not want them to go to hell, who does not desire that they perish away from his presence forever. He has taken the first step. He has initiated the relationship with us. And he's just waiting for us to respond. But he's not sitting there waiting pensively and anxiously. He's calling us to himself actively through the preaching of his word through evangelism and discipleship, carrying out the Great Commission. And this is the reason that you exist. This is the reason why God has given you another day and another breath. You're 16, you're 60. It doesn't matter. Man or woman, it doesn't matter. Whatever God has given you, he has given you, he's given it to you for this very purpose. And I think the more time we spend in Leviticus, the more that that is going to come into clear picture. And that's my prayer. I'm gonna pray and then I'm gonna go pass out in my office. I love you guys. Uh, Father, uh, we come before you with uh, hearts full of thanksgiving. We recognize who we are and what we deserve and we see in the gospel uh, the the reality that you have given us uh, something much better. We pray that you would help us uh, to be responsive to this reality in all of the right ways. Help us as a church to dedicate all of our time, talent, and treasure uh, to being holy and to calling people to holiness. And we pray this in your son's name, amen.